Father, we thank You for the truth that we've already heard this morning. We've sung truth. We've heard truth read. We've prayed truth. We've considered the truth. The truth is what we're consumed with because the truth comes from You. In fact, You are the truth. You embody the truth. You are the source of truth. All truth, biblical truth, is concerning You, about You, fixed on You, and has as its end and purpose Your ultimate glory. And so, Father, we are people who love the truth. That's why we're here this morning. We're not here this morning because we want to be entertained. We're not here this morning uh, primarily for a social gathering. We are here this morning because we love God. We long to worship God. We know that You deserve to be worshipped. You are worthy of worship. You are the One who created the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. By Your will they exist and were created You are our rightful lawgiver and judge. You're the one that formed us in our mother's wombs, given us life, breath, and all things. You're the one who uh, keeps us from sicknesses and diseases. You're the one who has given us life and breath. You're the one that provides for all of our needs. You're the God who has given us a sufficient Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, who bore your wrath for us, who delivers us from the wrath that is to come. And you're the God who has graciously allowed us and commanded us and called us to meet to worship You on the Lord's Day. And we are so unworthy of that glorious privilege. But now we come knowing that our worship is never what we want it to be. We want it to be perfect, but we know it will not be until that final day. But we pray that through our Lord Jesus Christ, by the work of the Spirit in our hearts, that our worship would be acceptable in Your sight, that You would help us to worship You in spirit and truth, with purity of heart, with a pure conscience, Uh, conscience having been sprinkled clean by the blood of Christ, and that You would hear us and speak to us. You would help us to understand the Scripture, help us to uh, glean from this passage what You would have us to understand, help us to um, understand the divinely intended, authorially intended meaning, along with its doctrines and applications, and help us through this passage to have a more clear view of Your glory as manifested in Your Son. So we pray that you would do these things. Meet with us now. Amen. Well, all right, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. And after a few weeks off of our study of 1 John, it's good to be back in that study this morning. Uh, it's probably helpful to be out of John's thought for a short time. He's so cyclical, so repetitive, that uh, it might be a, well, probably a good idea to take a break and consider some other topics. But uh, we're getting right back into John's thought this morning, and John just continues to say the same things he's been saying with greater clarity and greater depth each time. So 1 John 3, and the passage we come to this morning is verses 4 through 10. 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. And this is a message that I've entitled, The Test of Righteousness. The Test of Righteousness. You already know that John wrote this letter from Ephesus to the believers of Asia Minor. And he wrote the letter to refute a group of false teachers who were presenting a false version of Christianity. A false version of Christianity. John wanted to affirm his flock in the truth. These dear believers whom he often refers to in the letter as his children, his beloved children, his dear children. He wanted to affirm them in the truth. And he wanted to provide them with assurance of their salvation. You have these false teachers come in 
they start out of the church, then all of a sudden they defect from the church, and they're telling you, you've got it wrong. Perhaps many of these defectors were friends with the members in the church, and they're telling them, look, you've got it wrong. We've come to be enlightened. We have this higher mystical truth that we need for salvation. You need to get with it and come with us. And so the believers of Asia Minor who had been hearing the teaching of John for some time were disturbed. John wanted these believers to be able to distinguish between that which is true from that which is false. So in chapter 5, verse 13, he kind of gives us his theme. He says, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. The book is written to provide Christians with assurance of their salvation. And John does that by writing a series of tests, three tests in particular, by which we can come to have that assurance. Those tests are the doctrinal test, the moral test, the social test. The true Christian believes the truth doctrinally, obeys the truth morally, loves in truth socially or relationally. If you pass those three tests, you can have confidence that you're the real thing. You're a real Christian. So that's John's theme here. And John has come now to cycle two, cycle two of these tests. I told you he just keeps going around and around and around. We've went through cycle one, we're on cycle two. And specifically, John's focus here is the moral test, the moral test. He started to focus on that at the end of chapter two, verse 29, all the way into 3.3. There he basically said that our sonship in Christ, being a child of God, has a profound moral sanctifying effect on our lives. It radically alters our behavior. Anyone who claims to be a child of God while going on the pattern of life he once lived is not really a child of God. That's really John's message here. And John continues that theme in verses 4 through 10. The theme of righteousness. Let me read the passage to you. 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him sins. No one who sins has seen Him or knows Him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. One thing that John has made clear throughout the letter so far is that there are only two kinds of people in the world. There are only two kinds of people in the world. The Jews, by the way, in John's day would have agreed with that. They would have said, of course there's two kinds of people in the world. But to the Jew, the two kinds of people were Jews and Gentiles. Jews and non-Jews. You were either a Jew or not. That was the two kinds of people to the Jews. But in reality, the two kinds of people that exist are those who walk in the light or those who walk in the darkness. Those who obey God are those who do not. Those who believe the truth and those who reject the truth. That is the only categories of people that exist in the world. So the two kinds of people then are unbelievers and believers. 
Christians in Antichrist. And here in verse 10, it's the children of God and the children of the devil. In fact, verse 10 here in chapter 3 is really the key to the whole passage. John says, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. The true believer, the true child of God, is characterized by the practice of righteousness. So that being a true child of God then affects the way we live our life. It's not simply about a profession. It's not merely about doctrinal truths you believe. It is also about the way you live your life. A true child of God has a transformed life. Unfortunately, if you look at much of the contemporary church, much of the professing church, the visible church, you won't find that to be the case. Sin within the visible church runs rampant. Sin runs rampant. You've got adultery. You've got pornography. You've got immorality. You've got abortion. You've got homosexuality. All kinds of wickedness runs rampant within the professing church. So much sin, it seems to go unchecked. Clearly, this does not accurately reflect what the Scripture teaches. Obviously, many of those who profess to be Christians just are not Christians at all. At all. And many people grow up, if you're like me, you grow up in an evangelical church, you pray a prayer, and that's it. You're in the kingdom. When I first heard the fact that you could profess to be a Christian and not really be a Christian, I was about 19, and I was stunned. I couldn't believe no one ever told me this. I went to church. It doesn't matter how you lived your life on Sunday. If you're there, you're baptized, you're a professing believer, you must be in the kingdom. But that is not the case. And perhaps you've heard this statement. We all live in sin. We all live in sin. You can't judge us because all Christians live in sin. Everybody just lives in sin. Is that really true? Is it really true that everybody lives in sin? Is there really no difference between the church and the world? Between God's children and the devil's children? Are they indistinguishable? Is it really true that all people live in sin? John would say, absolutely not. Absolutely not. There is a clear demarcation between those who belong to God and those who do not. There is a clear distinction between God's children and the devil's children. And the difference is that of night and day, light and darkness, sin and righteousness. That is the clear distinction between a true child of God and a false believer. John's point in this passage is simply this, very simple. True Christians do not live in sin. True Christians do not live in sin. The word sin or a synonym for sin is used some 13 times in these seven verses. John's point is that that sin no longer dominates the life of a child of God. Verse 6 says this, No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen Him or knows Him. Verse 8 adds, The one who practices sin is of the devil. Verse 9, No one who is born of God practices sin, and he cannot sin. He cannot sin. That's strong language, isn't it? That's strong language. In other words, true believers cannot and will not live in sin. Sin is no longer the dominant pattern of their life. 
Now, is John saying that Christians don't sin at all? Is that what John's saying? That Christians are sinless? They're perfect? Obviously, that's not the case. You know, we've been through this before. Back in chapter 1, verse 8, John says, Look, if you say you have no sin, you're lying and deceiving yourself, and the truth is not in you. John's already stated that very clearly. John believed what Paul said in Romans 3.23, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul or John believed what Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 7.20, that there's not a man on earth who always does what is right and never sins. John believed that. John knew that. So John is not asserting that true Christians never sin. In fact, that was a lie that the heretics were purveying. John is not agreeing with the false teachers that he's writing to refute. Remember, I told you that the heresy John was dealing with was really an incipient form of Gnosticism, a teaching that later in the second century was referred to as Gnosticism. And there were many heretical notions that they purveyed, but the heart of their false teaching was this. It was a philosophical dualism that said, my body is evil, but my spirit is good. My body is evil, but my spirit is pure. And therefore, it didn't really matter what I did with my body. My sin was just my body running its natural course, so that what I did with my body was inconsequential. This would lead them to do two things, two extremes. They would indulge in sin, and yet simultaneously deny that they even had sin at all. They would indulge in it, and yet deny it. John is not agreeing with the false teachers. John is not saying that believers have no sin. In fact, the key here is in the tenses throughout 1 John 3, 4-10. The word for practices here, if you have an NAS, it says practices. If you have a different translation, it might say something different. But if you look at 1 John 3, 4, John says everyone who practices sin. You go to verse uh, 7. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. Verse 8. The one who practices sin is of the devil. That word for practices there, uh, it's the word poia, and it's always in the present tense. It's used several times here. Every time it's used in the present tense. And so it denotes continuous action. This is a habitual pattern of life that John is talking about. John is not saying Christians don't sin at all. John is saying that Christians' lives are no longer dominated by a habitual pattern of ongoing, unrepentant, relentless sin. The life of a Christian has been changed. John Gill was right when he said this word, that here it designs a course of sinning, a willful, obstinate, persisting in sin. That is what John is talking about. That is what a true Christian cannot do. So true Christians cannot live in sin. But why? Why? Why can a Christian not live in sin? John's going to give us four reasons in this passage, four reasons that true Christians cannot and will not live in sin. We'll look at the first two this morning. We'll look at the other two next week. So number one, Number one, the first reason a true Christian cannot live in sin is because sin is contrary to the law of Christ. Sin is contrary to the law of Christ. Look at verse 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. 
Here, John provides us with a simple, basic definition of sin. Sin, he says, is lawlessness. The Greek word for sin here is the word hamartia. It's a military term meaning to miss the mark. Biblically, what is the mark we miss when we sin? The law. The law. Sin is lawlessness. That is to say, sin is breaking God's law. Sin is not an accident. Sin is not oopsie-daisy. Sin is not when good people make mistakes. Sin is an act of rebellion against God and against His law. What is the law, by the way? What is the law? The law is simply this. It's a codified expression, a written codified expression of the perfect character, nature, and will of God. That's what the law is. The law reveals both God's perfect character and His moral will for our lives. It's wrong to lie. Why? Because God is not a liar. It's wrong to steal because God is not a thief. The law reveals to us God's character in God's will. That's what sin is. Sin is a deviation against the character and the will of God. John provides another definition of sin, very similar definition in chapter 5, verse 17. He says, all sin is unrighteousness. The word unrighteousness there means the same thing. It means a violation of God's standards. That is what sin is. It is to violate transgress, break, deviate from the standards of God. Now, I've told you before, the word law, it's the Greek word pneumos, it could be used many different ways in the Bible. Uh, Sometimes it's used to refer to the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, what we often call the Torah or the Pentateuch. Uh, So sometimes that's what it refers to, the first five books of our Old Testament. Other times it refers to the whole Old Testament in general, If you read throughout the Bible, the psalmist will say things like, how I love your law, and how I meditate on your law day and night. Often that's a reference to the entirety of the Scripture that David had, that the psalmist had. But at other times, the word nomos, the word law, is used with a specific reference to the commandments contained in the Mosaic law. The commandments contained in the Mosaic law. There were around 613 commandments in the law, the Mosaic Law. That's a, that's a lot, isn't it? We have trouble keeping 10 and 2, but here's 613 for you. Uh, and I've told you before that all of those commandments that make up the law of God could really be broken into three categories. Uh, theologians call this the threefold division of the law. There is the ceremonial law, the civil law, and the moral law. Ceremonial law, civil law, and the moral law. The ceremonial law refers to those laws or commandments that were rituals. The sacrificial system, the feast days, the dietary laws, etc. These things were symbols that pointed to something greater. They were rituals that would be a means by which God would separate Israel from the nations. They didn't have a lot in common with the nations. They couldn't eat some of the same foods. They couldn't wear the same material. They looked differently God used that to keep Israel separate from the nations and to symbolize the need for spiritual and moral separation by Christ that comes through the Gospel. These were all temporary laws. They were, as Hebrews chapter 10 says, shadows of the good things to come. Shadows of the good things to come. Colossians 2 says they were shadows, but the substance to which they pointed was Christ. 
Since Christ has come, the shadows are irrelevant. They pass away. They are no more. Ephesians 2 says very specifically that Christ has abolished the ceremonial law. It is no more. So that's the ceremonial law. The civil law, or you could call it the judicial law, that was the aspect of the Mosaic law that dealt with legal matters. If someone were to commit a crime in Israel, you know, we often have this idea in our culture, well, that just means everybody threw stones at you. That's not how it worked. It worked this way. They would be taken before the court system of Israel, before the elders, and if they were found guilty on the evidence of two or three witnesses, then they would receive a punishment that fit the crime, whether it be stoning or if they had to pay back restitution or whatever the case may be. That was the judicial law. The ceremonial law was given exclusively to Israel. The judicial law was given also to Israel as a theocracy, a nation under the government of God. But with the inauguration of the new covenant and with God now setting aside national Israel temporarily for a time, the ceremonial law and the judicial law both have passed away and they are no more. But that brings us then to the moral law. The moral law. Often in our culture, people just chalk the moral law up with the rest of the aspects of the law. God's gotten rid of the law, so I don't have to do anything morally. I don't have to, you know, the Ten Commandments are gone. They're irrelevant. That's kind of the way many people think in our culture. But that's not the case. The moral law is binding on all people in every age. The moral law is binding on all people in every age. The moral law was summed up nicely for us in the Ten Commandments, the commandments that God gave through Moses on Mount Sinai. But that law really existed before the Ten Commandments. The moral law pre-existed the Mosaic form of that law. Romans chapter 2 tells us that God's law is written on the hearts of all men, all people. So that even pagan Gentiles outside of Israel who never had heard of the God of Israel, who had never had the Bible, even they knew the moral law of God. All people in every society and every culture know it's wrong to lie, it's wrong to steal, it's wrong to blaspheme the Creator. Why do they know that's wrong? Not because their parents taught them, but because the law of God is written on the hearts of all men and the consciences of every person bears witness to that law. So the moral law is really rooted in the very nature of God Himself. So the moral law deals with morality. It's the law summarized nicely in the Ten Commandments. It's a law that has existed ever since the beginning. And that is the law that John primarily has in mind here in chapter 3, verse 4. Sin is breaking that law. It's not an accident. Sin is cosmic treason. Sin is an act of insurrection. Sin is willful rebellion against the rule of God and the law of God and the authority of God. That is what makes sin so seriously. And John says, therefore, since sin is lawlessness, a true believer cannot live in sin. A true believer cannot live in sin because everyone who practices sin practices lawlessness. A true Christian can't do that. Because a true Christian loves God and loves the law of God. And that love produces obedience. In fact, in Jeremiah 31 verse 33, one of the benefits of the new covenant is that God writes His law on our hearts. Therefore, we know that law, we love that law, and we obey that law. 
Ezekiel 36, I'll give you a new heart, put a new spirit within you, and calls you to walk in My statutes. God, in the new birth, in the new covenant, calls us His people to love and obey the law. So the true believer can say with David, Lord, how I love Your law. How I love Your law. David said, My eyes shed streams of tears because they break Your law. That's the attitude a true Christian has with regard to the law of God. So contrary then to what many evangelicals say today, there's an idea today, we're not under any law, we just need to love people. The issue is if you love people, you fulfill the entirety of the law. You fulfill the whole law. So it's not like love gets rid of the other commandments. Love just fulfills the other commandments. It's the attitude in which we carry out the other laws. So contrary then to what many evangelicals say today, the law is good. The law is good. That's exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse 12. He says, the law is good, holy, and righteous. That's the way a true believer thinks about the law. In fact, in Romans 7, at the very end of verse 22, Paul says, in my inner man, I joyfully concur with the law of God. He says, I love the law. I agree with the law. I delight in the law. That is the attitude of a true believer towards the law that God has given. So a true Christian can't live in sin. He can't live in lawlessness. A true Christian does not, listen to this, a true Christian does not live like a practical atheist. A true Christian does not live like a practical atheist. Because that's what lawlessness is. Lawlessness, the Greek here is just two words, it's ah, that's the alpha primitive, it negates what comes after, and nomos, no law. That's what he's saying. It's to live as if there's no law. And if there's no law, there's no God who gave the law. It's to live then as if there is no God at all. I'm God. I do what I want. True Christians do not and cannot live that way. The law is good. What are some of the good purposes that the law serves? What are some of the good purposes? There are many things the law does for us that are good. Let me give you a few of them. First of all, the law shows us our sin. The law shows us our sin. Romans chapter 3, verse 20 says this, Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So the law reveals sin. Romans 7, 7 says, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I wouldn't have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. The law reveals sin. It's like a mirror. It's like a mirror. You know, a man may go out and think his face looks nice and well and clean until he looks in the mirror and realizes, no, he needs to wipe his dinner off his mouth. And by looking in the mirror, he sees that, and the mirror drives him to the sink so that he cleanses his face. The law is like that for us. It's the mirror in which we accurately see ourselves. A man may think he's good. He may, as the book of Proverbs says, proclaim his own goodness, think he's a righteous person. Then he looks into the mirror of God's law and sees his blemishes and his defects and his sin and realizes how unrighteous he is. And the idea is that that would then drive him to the fountain of the blood of Christ that he might be cleansed through faith. That's what Galatians 3.24 says. It says, The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. You ever thought about that? What does the Bible say leads people to Christ? The law. 
the law because the law shows us our sin, shows us our guilt, drives us to our Savior that we might be justified by faith. So the law shows sin. The law drives men to the Savior. And another good purpose of the law is that it reveals to us God's moral will. We know what God requires of us morally because the law of God tells us. God's will for you is that you honor your parents. You do not worship other gods. That you tell the truth. That you work hard and not steal. How do you know that? Because the law of God tells you that. So the law of God reveals sin, drives men to the Savior, and it reveals the will of God. The law of God even restrains sin, by the way. It restrains sin. In God's common grace, He has established human government. And even though human governments are often corrupt, including our own, yet even there, by common grace, you find remnants of God's law being upheld. It is illegal to murder most people in our culture. Most people. Not all people, but most people. Why? Because the law of God is in the hearts of all people. So people know that it's wrong. If it wasn't for that common grace, if it wasn't for God's law in the hearts of all men, we would be vicious creatures. And it would, you know, you'd have to really put a padlock on your door. And then I'd be justified in the way I lock my door at night. Keith doesn't... Keith thinks I'm a little too scared. And I would be, would need to be that scared if God's law wasn't on the hearts of all people because we would be unrestrained in our unrighteousness. But the law of God then serves many good purposes. Many good purposes. The law is, as Paul tells Timothy, it's good if one uses it lawfully. If one uses it lawfully. What does that mean? That means there is a bad way to use the law. There is a bad way. If you use the law as a method of salvation, if you try to utilize the law as a way of attaining a right standing with God, that's not good. That's bad. That will damn your soul to hell. The law cannot save, nor was it ever intended to save. The law only shows us our need for the Savior. So if you use the law to earn salvation, that's bad. But if you use the law for its divinely intended purposes, that's good. Use it to show you your sin. Use it to lead you to Christ. Use it as an evangelistic tool. Use it as a means by which you learn and do the will of God. That is a good purpose of the law. So the law is good if it's used lawfully. And believers understand that. Believers know the law is good. Believers love the law. In Matthew 5.17, Jesus made it crystal clear that He did not come to do away with the law. Right? What does He say? I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but what? To fulfill. I didn't come to abolish it. And then He goes on and specifies what aspect of the law He's talking about. He mentions adultery. He mentions murder. He starts to quote from the Ten Commandments because He's talking about the moral law that's summarized in the Ten Commandments. True believers are bound to obey the law the law that they love because they love God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, passage perhaps familiar to you, Paul is talking about laying aside his liberties for unity in the church and effective evangelism. And he talks about becoming all things to all men. But as he talks about that, he clarifies that there is a limit. That there is a law that he still has to obey. Listen to what he says there. He says to the Jews, I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. In other words, Jews wouldn't eat certain things. They wouldn't eat certain things. So I'm not going to go into a Jew, try to share the gospel with them and eat the things they don't want to eat and just turn them away so they won't hear me. I'll live like a Jew. I'll eat what they eat. 
to those under the law as under the law, though not myself being under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. If I'm with the Gentiles who don't have the ceremonial law, they eat whatever they want, I'll eat what they want, and I'll set aside the ceremonial law because I don't want to offend them. I want them to listen to the gospel. Then he says in verse 21, to those who are without law is without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Paul says, as I lay aside my liberties, I know I'm not without God's law because I'm under the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? It's the moral law of God summarized in the New Covenant by Jesus with two commandments, love God, love your neighbor. And those two commandments encompass the rest of the commandments. Fulfill them all. Paul says in Romans 13, you know, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt murder, shalt not lie. Any other commandment, it's summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The law of Christ then is the moral law in the New Covenant summarized by the law of love. And true believers, out of love for God, out of love for neighbor, obey that law. So the law then is binding on everyone. Everyone has the moral law. Unbelievers are under that law as a covenant of works. It's a very important distinction to make. Unbelievers are under the moral law of God as a covenant of works. They are under its penalty and power and condemnation. Under the curse of the law, Paul says in Galatians 3. Believers, however, are not under that curse anymore. Christ, Paul says, redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He bore the curse. He removed the curse. We no longer exist under the law as a covenant of works. Now, believers possess the law as a rule of life. As a rule of life. And they're enabled to obey that law as a pattern of life by the work of the Spirit in their hearts. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says that the law, the requirement of the law, is fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, living in our hearts, empowers us, compels us, and enables us to increasingly and progressively obey the law of God. Not perfectly, but increasingly and progressively. So then at conversion, our relationship with the law changes. We go from hating the law and being under its condemnation to being freed from that condemnation and loving the law and obeying that law. Paradoxically, we're freed from the law that we might obey the law. Freed from the law that we might obey it. In John 14, 15, what did Jesus say? If you love me, what are you going to do? Keep my commandments. Keep my commandments. Back in chapter 2, John made it clear that obedience was the mark of a true believer. Go to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse, starting in verse 3. Chapter 2, verse 3, John says, By this we know that we've come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. The one who says, I've come to know Him and does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word, in him the love of God has been perfected. By this we know that we are in Him. So how do you know then, according to... John, that you're a true believer? How do you know that you know Christ? How do you know that you love Christ? Because you obey His commandments. Chapter 5, verse 3 adds, This is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. We don't find the law to be a burden. We find the law to be our delight, because we love and delight in the God who gave that law. 
In Matthew 7, Jesus gave a sober warning. We all know about it. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says they're saved is saved. And then at the very end, He says this, I will say to many on that day, depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice what? Lawlessness, iniquity, sin. Lawlessness is a mark of the false convert who will be banished from the presence of Christ on that last day. True Christians cannot live in sin because it is antithetical to the law that they love. So that's the first reason that true believers cannot live in sin. It's contrary to the law of Christ. But let me give you one more reason today. The second reason true Christians cannot live in sin is because sin is contrary to the work of Christ. Sin is contrary to the work of Christ. Look at verse 5. John says, You know that He appeared in order to take away sins. He clearly refers to Christ. Christ appeared. Christ appeared. Again, the word phanerao. He was made manifest, made known, made visible. He came in the flesh. It's the incarnation, the virgin birth. Jesus became a man. And why did He appear? What was the purpose? John says, in order to take away sins. That word, the words there, to take away, translates one Greek word, the word aro. It means to lift, to remove, to take away. It's used in Colossians 2 in a similar way. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 2 verse 14. He says, God has forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. Here's the word. He has taken it out of the way. God has removed our debt, removed our sin, taken it out of the way. How did He do that? The end of verse 14 says, having nailed it to the cross. Our guilt, our sin, our iniquity, our lawlessness, all removed, all taken out of the way because it was nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. God legally accredited our sin to Christ and then He crushed Him on the cross under His wrath for that sin so that that sin is completely removed. The psalmist put it this way, he's cast our sin as far as the east is from the west. How far is that? You ever try to measure that? In other words, it's gone. It is no more. Isaiah 53 provides perhaps the most glorious theological explanation of the cross in the whole Bible. And ironically enough, it comes from the Old Testament. 700 and some odd years before Christ was even born, Isaiah wrote with specific detail about the work of Christ. Let me read a few verses. You don't have to turn there. I'll read some very quickly to you. Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed." All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. Why is your iniquity gone? Because it fell on Christ. Because Christ took it. Took it to the cross. Took it to the grave. It is no more. Your sin, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, your sin is gone. Then verse 8 in Isaiah 53 adds this. By oppression and judgment He was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living 
for the transgression of my people. That's the language of substitution. Christ took the place. He died for sin. For the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. And then verse 10 adds this, but it pleased the Lord to crush Him. That's what happened at the cross. God crushed Jesus in the fullness of His just wrath and anger, and that judgment took away our sin. That's why John the Baptist, what does he say when Christ comes onto the scene? He says, Behold the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. That's what He does. He takes it away. He removes it by bearing it on the cross. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He Himself bore our sin in His body on the cross. He bore the sin. That's the heart of the Christian message. Jesus bore the sin of His people, the wrath of God that was the consequence of that sin, and He removed it from us. So that's the purpose of the Incarnation. The purpose of His appearing. To take away sins. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It was a rescue mission. There was a purpose. Jesus was not merely a noble martyr. He was not just a prophet, not just a teacher, not just an example. He was a bleeding substitute who by His death saved His people from judgment. That's why Matthew one twenty one at the very beginning of His life, at the conception, the angel says, look, you should name Him Jesus. Why? Because He will save His people from their sins. That's who He is. He's the Savior. He's Yahweh who saves His people from their sins. So that's the purpose. He came into the world to take away sins. Now here's the question. How does that become a reason that true Christians cannot live in sin? You see, in our culture, when we think about the work of Christ, all we usually think about is what we call justification. Forgiveness. Christ died. He took away my penalty, the penalty for my sin. I'm forgiven. But we need to realize there's more to the work of Christ. There's more to it. The work of Christ not only takes away the penalty for sin, but it takes away the power of sin. The work of Christ takes away not only the penalty, but also the power of sin. Let me show you this. Go to Romans chapter 6. Romans 6. It seems like we go here often, but I think it's an extremely important passage. So we'll go there again. Romans chapter 6. Apostle Paul in the first five chapters explained in the most glorious terms the doctrine of justification by faith alone. All are guilty. All are damned. All can be justified by faith in Christ. But then he gets to chapter 6 and he transitions from justification to sanctification. Sanctification. Romans 6, starting in verse 1. Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. Absolutely not. How shall we who die to sin still live in it? Paul is making, implicitly, through his question, he's making an assertion. He's making a theological statement. He's saying this, if you're a Christian, you have died to sin. If you're a believer in this room this morning, you have died to sin. And the second assertion is that if you've died to sin, you can't live in it. How could you do that? It's impossible. Now, how have we died to sin? Verse 3 answers that question. 
Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? How have we died to sin? Through our union with Christ in His work on the cross. The Spirit, we've talked about this over the last few weeks, the Holy Spirit at conversion immerses us, submerges us into union with Jesus Christ so that His death is our death, His burial is our burial, His resurrection is our resurrection. That's what verse 4 says. Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. We've been resurrected spiritually as new creatures. There is this mystical union with Christ. I don't fully understand it. I can't fully explain it. But somehow, through your relationship with Christ at salvation, you died, you were buried, you were resurrected. Verse 5 says, For if we become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him. It was the old self the old man, the old person. Who you were before you were converted died at conversion, is buried, and is no more. You're a new person, a new creature in Christ, born again, a new person with new life. And so to be free, dead to sin, is to be freed from sin. Through Christ, we die to sin and we're liberated from its penalty and its power. Verse 7, he says this, He says that knowing this, old selves died, crucified with Him, in order that, here's the purpose for this, in order that our body of sin might be done away with. That's the end of verse 6. So that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for He who has died is freed from sin. The purpose of your union with Christ is that you might die to sin's penalty and power and be freed from it. Freed from it. Now think about how big of a contradiction it is to say this. I'm a Christian. Christ came to take away my sins. I'm freed from sin, and yet I live in sin. I indulge in sin. That's a contradiction, isn't it? It reminds us of what Jesus said in Luke 6. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? That's a contradiction. That's a contradiction. You see, the point is this. At conversion, sin is dethroned. Sin in the heart is dethroned. Sin no longer reigns. It's still there. It's still operative in your unredeemed human body, but it no longer is the reigning ruling principle. Instead, now grace reigns. Righteousness reigns. Christ reigns. That's why he goes on and says in verse 18, having been freed from sin, we become slaves of righteousness. Righteousness. Verse 11, he says you're dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's no longer, sin is no longer the dominating tyrannical ruler in your heart. It has been dethroned. It is there raging as a defeated foe with lessening power because Christ has defeated sin in your heart by grace. And now, because of that, believers have the ability and the power to overcome sin and live a habitual life of righteousness and a pattern of obedience to the Word of God. You can go back to 1 John 3 now. 1 John 3. So John is saying here, look, Christ came to take away sins. Christ came to take away sins. If that's true for you, because He came not just to take away its penalty, but its power, if that works applied to you, you can no longer live in sin. If you're going on in an unrepentant, habitual, 
pattern of sin, then the work of Christ does not apply to you. To say you're a Christian, to say the work of Christ is applied to your heart, but to go on living in sin is to nullify the work of Christ. It is to say the work of Christ isn't enough to take away my sin. It wasn't sufficient. It didn't work. It is to nullify the work of Christ. You see, we need to understand this. All grace, all saving grace, is purchased grace. All saving grace is purchased grace. The reason God can give you a new heart, the reason God can justly and righteously give you the Spirit, the reason God can be just and yet sanctify you and make you His and make you holy is because Jesus purchased that right for you on the cross. So the work of Christ becomes the basis then, not only for the forgiveness of sin, but even for the liberation from the power of sin. So when he makes the statement that Christ came to take away sins, this deals with glorious doctrines such as propitiation and redemption, expiation, justification. Jesus died. Jesus paid the penalty. Jesus removed my guilt. He satisfied God's wrath and He made me right with God. That's true. But it also deals with union with Christ and sanctification and regeneration. God gives me a new heart, destroys the power of sin, and liberates me from its dominating influence so that I can now live for God, for righteousness. A righteousness that is only perfected in the next life. But it is a real righteousness. It is an increasing righteousness, a progressive righteousness that is the mark of every true child of God. This means, very practically, here's what this means. It means that... If you are not experiencing increasing victory over sin, you are not a believer. If you are not experiencing increasing victory over sin, you're not a believer. It's slow growth. It's, sometimes it's hard to tell over a short period of time. But if you can't look back and say, you know what, yes, I'm not what I once was. I am gaining slowly but surely victory over my sin. I'm seeing a decreasing pattern of sin and an increasing pattern of righteousness. If you cannot say that, there is something radically wrong with your heart. The work of Christ is effectual. Christ is a sufficient Savior. His work accomplishes exactly what it was intended to do, namely, to take away sin. So it is absurd to say I'm freed from sin and yet live in sin. No true believer, John says, can do that. No believer can do that because Sin is antithetical to the work of our Savior. So sin then is contrary to the law of Christ and it's contrary to the work of Christ. True Christians cannot live in sin because sin is an act of ongoing, constant rebellion against our God and the law that He has given us, the law that we love. And no Christian can live in sin because sin is contrary to what Christ accomplished at the cross when He saved us from sin's penalty and even sin's dominating power. In fact, verse 8, John goes on and says this, The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. And we'll talk more about that next week, along with two additional reasons that true Christians cannot live in sin. But brothers and sisters, may we this morning examine ourselves. What is it that marks your life? Is your life marked by ongoing, 
disregard for the law of God and unrepentant, habitual sin? Or can you say, yes, I see that my life's changing. I fall, I struggle, I'm sinful, but I see consistent, slow growth in my life, victory over sin, and conformity to the image of Christ. If you can say that, praise God. You can be confident that you belong to Him. So brothers and sisters, may we this morning pursue righteousness for our assurance and for the glory of our God. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful that even though often the wheat and tares grow together and sometimes for a short period they can be hard to distinguish between the two, we know that eventually that distinguishing can be made. We can have confidence that we have eternal life because there are tests that Your Word provides us, real objective tests, by which we can verify the validity of our salvation or the lack thereof. And we're thankful for this wonderful test this morning. The test of righteousness. A test of decreasing sin. We're thankful that You have destroyed the power of sin that once reigned within us, that it no longer rules our hearts and our lives, that You have given us not only Your Spirit, not only have You given us new heart, new life, You've given us all the means of grace, the Bible, prayer, the saints, the church, fellowship, all of these things, and You use it all to make us like the Lord Jesus. And we thank You for that. I pray if there's anyone here this morning who's not a believer, who's living like a practical atheist, their lives are marked by unrepentant, habitual sin, I pray that today you would open their eyes to the reality of their condition. I pray you would change their hearts. I pray you would draw them effectually to faith in Christ and that they would begin to follow Jesus all the days of their life. And I pray for each of us who are believers today that we would be encouraged by these tests, that we would have our faith and our assurance verified and that we would be motivated to continue to press on to righteousness for Your glory. We thank You for all these things, Lord. Amen.